Hello and welcome to I Migrate the Podcast, the show where we'll be sharing the stories and experiences of people who have migrated to the UK from countries across the world. Whether they are escaping conflict, in search of education opportunities, or looking for adventure, they all share the similar challenges of having to assimilate to a new country and culture. In today's episode, I'll be talking to my friend Duni about her experience of migrating from Nigeria to the UK. Hello, Duni. Welcome to the show, Duni. Introduce yourself, please. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Duni, and I first came to the UK at the age of 16, um, Nigerian heritage, and uh, was born in Nigeria, but spent a number of years outside of Nigeria. In total, so far, I have completed less than 12 years in total living in Nigeria. Wow. So for someone who has never been to Nigeria, what can you tell them about it? My experiences of growing up in Nigeria were very much centered around family. So it was living with mum and dad um, in different states as we grew up. And yeah, it was family orientated, um, going to church, meeting up with friends. And a lot of it was um, linked to the company my dad worked for, which was what led to the international travel later. So what was life like just before you moved? The first big move for the family was when I was 11 and it was very exciting. We knew that we were going to live in a different country and we ended up moving to Oman in the Middle East and we were there for, well, I was there for five years because my dad's contract ended and I stayed on to complete my GCSEs there. And then it was after the completion of my GCSEs that I then moved to England to do my A-levels. Oh, that must have been very exciting moving from Nigeria to Oman. How was it when you know, what is it like to be in this new country? It was the most amazing experience. The country is beautiful. The people are amazing. And it was a great experience having my teenagers in an international school setting. And at that point, um, the school had only been going for a few years, but there were already 30 plus uh, and it grew to over 50 different nationality students at the school. So it was an amazing experience in terms of learning about different cultures and a number of friends that I made at that age and I'm still friends with now. None of them live in Oman at present. Uh, Actually, one of them still does live in Oman, but they're scattered throughout the world, which means lots of great holidays. Wow. (laughs) I just, I can't imagine, you know, it's hot out there, isn't it? It's very, very hot out there, yes. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is, yeah. it, is, it, is it hotter than Nigeria, would you say? Um, the, the heat is very different. It's more of a, a dry heat being a desert. So it feels like it's very burning, <laughs> burning feeling on your skin. But I, I like that feeling. I like the feeling of heat. And that's something that I do miss living in the UK. Oh, talking about the UK. So why did you choose to move to the UK? You mentioned that you moved to the UK, is it um, when you were 16? Yes. Um, At the age of 16, there was the option to go to the States. There was a discussion had with my father and he said the option was there to continue my education in the States or to come to the UK. And my older sister was living in the UK. She was attending University of London. And I just thought it made sense for us to be in the same country. And so... That's why I chose England, because my sister was here. What did you feel like just before you moved from, because you're moving from the family home in Oman, 
into the UK mm. with your sister. So how what were the final days for you just before you moved? Just before leaving, it was... Um it was tense at home. I knew that I was going to be leaving my younger brother and sister and my mum and dad. But it was also exciting because it was new and it was different and it was change again. And the experience of being in Oman for those nearly five years prior to that was very exciting and everything new was really eye-opening and, a, and an education in terms of socialising with lots of different people. So I thought it was going to be much the same when I got to the UK. So I was looking forward to it. So were there any significant difficulties when it came to moving to the UK? Not with the actual move, but once I got to the UK, things were very different to what I expected. Um, <laughs> it sounds very um, ridiculous, but being in the UK at the age of 16 was the first time I'd ever got on a bus Prior to that, we'd had drivers, we'd been taken care of or taken school buses, but that was something new. I couldn't, as a student, afford to then take taxis everywhere or be chauffeured wherever I needed to go. So that was a, a learning curve, getting a, a bus pass in London to get from home to college. So yeah, that, that was one of the, that was one of the big things. My sister did pick me up from the airport in a black taxi and then said, that's probably the last time that's going to happen for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realize what she meant until when it was time to start college and went over to the corner shop to get my travel card for the week so that I could use the buses to get to and from college. So it was a very steep learning curve in terms of building independence at the age of 16 and going to a college where um, <laughs> a lot of my classmates referred to me as the American girl because the international school accent was, um, was very strongly leaned towards the American accent. And I actually did spend a lot of time practicing speaking so that I didn't feel different to everybody else. So that it took a little while, took about a year before people stopped calling me the American girl, but <laughs> they did stop because I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be the same as my classmates while we were studying. So what were the stark differences between Oman and the UK that you first noticed when you just landed? You said um, a few things about you knew you had to be independent, but apart from your independence, what else did you see that was stark differences? Um, it didn't feel as diverse in London. And we'd grown up in Nigeria with lots of um, quite well-to-do families. And there was, uh, it wasn't even an expectation that everybody had to be educated. It was just what happened. And so getting to the UK and people saying that they had a choice and if they were going to go to sixth form or go to university it did confuse me like why is that an option to not but that was something that wasn't in my in my sphere of experience and so I learned that with that independence came lots of options that were that weren't options they were just expectations in terms of completing my education and being successful I didn't realize that it was a choice until I got to to the UK I just thought that's what everyone everyone did Wow, <laughs> that is African parenting for you, isn't it? Completely, <laughs> I completely agree with that because mm. the thought never even crossed my mind at all that 
I would not go to college. I would not go to university. And even I joke about this with my family. I'm the least qualified person in my family and I've got a master's degree (laughs) in education. And so it's the idea of not going to further education was just not an option. It was just what, what would happen. And the fact that people had that choice to not do it was refreshing, but also strange because it wasn't my experience. So did that influence any decisions you made at the time? Um, It didn't influence any decisions I made in terms of carrying on with my education, but it definitely influenced the choices that I made in terms of what courses I studied. I would say that I probably had more of an artistic flair, not necessarily with fine arts, but more things to do with socialising. And it wasn't something that would have fit well with the family um, dynamic. So in terms of choosing courses for the university, uh, for going to university, I knew that I had to choose something that would be suitable. <laughs> so what does that mean, being suitable? What so, does that mean, come um, on, don't it? Um, it has to be, well, I was told this by my father after getting my A-levels, that in terms of choosing a course at university, it had to be something that led to a profession as opposed to just doing a degree that I thought I would enjoy. It's like, you will enjoy whatever you do because it will earn you a profession, a career out of it. And that was the line that he took and there was no, there was no arguing <laughs> as he was paying for it because I was an international student. Um, so it wasn't an option in terms of choosing what I personally wanted, I would have chosen. But for me, I think that's something that comes from... He was a professional himself Absolutely, as well. yes. So that is where he was coming yeah, from. absolutely. So he didn't see, he couldn't think of you being any less. I absolutely get that now <laughs> as a much older individual. But at the time, being a mid to late teenager and um, my father being very insistent on what courses I was going to study, at the time I felt very restrained but I am very grateful that that did happen because it set me in a path that would make me secure in my future. And it has allowed me to travel based on the degree that I took and then my postgraduate studies as well, because that then took me overseas again. So looking back, what do you think you would have wanted to do if you it was Ooh. your choice? Ooh, come on, go on. Go on. This is, feels like bearing my soul. Um, I felt that international business management was something that was on the cards, but it wasn't a profession. So it was quickly discarded as an option. And one of the other things was um, physiotherapy because I was... I've always been very interested in biology and using biology in that respect was something that interested me at the time. But again, I think that the best decision that led to the path that I did follow was made. So I don't I don't feel like I lost out. I feel like I gained. I mean, I'm an African parent, so I can't say <laughs> any 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 other ways about it. So let's just, you know. But do you think it's something, especially if you're you know you're I'm trying to look at it from your parents' point of view. Mm. You're in a foreign land. Mm. So the decisions are being made for your future. Absolutely. And they're trying to support you mm. in whichever way possible. Because you just, especially, you, you, you mentioned 
they're paying international fees. They were not cheap. No, they really were not at all. (laughs) And when I think back to it, I am incredibly grateful for it because it's impossible to imagine the financial strain that was on my on my father not just for the tuition but also for the the board so where to live how to eat and he definitely didn't want us to work while we were studying so that was one less pressure on us so I am very very grateful you also mentioned that you're feeling the feeling of trying to fit in with the other English teenagers or young adults. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, it wasn't just white English teenagers that I struggled with in terms of fitting in. It was all English teenagers because it was in South London and it was very multicultural. And there were lots of black African heritage British students and black Caribbean heritage British students at college as well. But it was very different to my experience of being a teenager up until that point. So some of the choices or options that they had for their social activities were completely alien to me. So the idea of people attending pubs or nightclubs underage was completely new to me and that was definitely not something that I was interested in because in the back of my mind I had my mum and my dad's faces burned into my brain going that's not what we do as a family so that wasn't something that I engaged in and um, in terms of travel or expectations from education I constantly found myself trying to just understand like why people weren't taking their studies as seriously as they could have been, especially if it was free. <laughs> they they weren't they didn't have to pay for it. And my father was having to pay for college as well as university. So it was six years of paying tuition and board and other people had it handed to I mean, them and yeah. it just I mean, it just struck me as a little bit odd that they weren't taking full advantage. I wouldn't say that was absolutely everybody, but it was the vast majority who weren't taking it as seriously as they, I thought they should have. I mean, I mean that is something that's very interesting for you saying that, because I remember when I first moved to the UK, I felt the same, that actually, why wouldn't you go to university first? Now, you know, you brought that up. Why, if it's being, you know, you don't have to pay, I think in the 90s, you, you got a grant to go to university. Yes. You didn't have to pay Absolutely. There were people that I went to university or who applied to university at the same time. That was another decision that I made. I thought, I'm not going to go to University of London. So I didn't apply to any London universities because I just thought, I want to see what else is out there. So I applied up north and I went to Bradford. And that was a whole new experience again. So in terms of people will get in tuition paid for but they were also sometimes getting additional grants in terms of paying their rent yeah and I know that my for example some people would get jobs and my dad had said that I wasn't to work but I did take some jobs and he wouldn't he wouldn't have been happy to know that I did take some part-time jobs just so that it wasn't all down to him to provide so just going back to you settling in the UK, and mm. then you, I know you mentioned having to live in London and going off to Bradford. 
Apart from your sister, were there any organisation or anybody else who helped you acclimatise to the UK? Um, not in college, but at university, there was uh, a halls of residence for international students. And they had said that they were going to place me in one of those halls of residence for international students. But I requested to not be in the international students block because I'd been in the UK for two years and I thought I'd go into regular halls of residence. But a mistake was made because they thought I was male and they never put female students on the ground floor. And they did place me on the ground floor and it was brilliant. They did try to get me to move because they thought they can't have a female on the ground floor. But I felt really close to the rest of my housemates in that part of the block. And they felt overly protective over me being a female in that part of the block. And they looked after me and I thought it was a happy accident that happened. My dad wasn't so sure when he came to visit though. (laughs) 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 Because um, in his mind, the idea of the proximity of male roommates was um, cause for concern, but it really wasn't because they were just big brothers to me because I was incredibly naive. Even after two years in the UK living in London, I was still very naive. There were things that I experienced at Bradford University that were an eye opener uh, in terms of social expectations of people of colour. So, yeah. Oh, that sounds interesting. (laughs) Come on, go on. Tell us an example. Go on. Um, In the second week of living in that room in the halls of residence, I was getting a number of knocks on my door at strange times and I didn't open the door. Because I just, I don't know anyone, nobody's coming to see me, so I didn't answer the door. And there was one day, and it wasn't particularly late, and I'd just come back from the communal kitchen, and a young man knocked on my door just after I'd shut it. And I opened it, and he said, do you have any grass? (laughs) And I was like, no, I don't have any plants. And he said, you know what I mean? Do you have any weed? (laughs) It's like... No, I just told you I don't have any plants, but there are some outside the window. And I just thought it was odd because I had, I literally at that point had no idea what grass or weed was. And there is a man outside my door, um, a young lad also at university outside my door asking me if I had any grass or weed. It was later on, I knocked on one of my neighbours, one of the boys, and I said, I don't know what this, and he burst out into laughter and said it's a type of drug and he assumed that because you're a black person in halls of residence that you would be a drug dealer and I was like oh and I literally would not have put that incident together with with what he'd said until he had said it because that was not my life (laughs) nothing to do with me the expectation of being a drug dealer at university because I am black was just alien to me. But do you think that was a bias that that person had grown up with? Or was that a cultural difference or or misunderstanding in that specific moment? I honestly couldn't tell you because that's the interaction I had. The idea of somebody knocking on my door and asking me for grass and then asking me for weed. And I was just confused about the entire interaction. <laughs> well, that was shocking. I think that, for me, that, I think that was shocking. You know, it's, it's, don't forget at that time you were 18 and having yeah. to deal with that by yeah. yourself. Yeah. 
me being uh, grew up in Africa, and I don't, I know the expectation when you go to university mm. is to be faced with that as a young woman. I think that at the time you you dealt with it quite well. I I think that my naivety in my first few years in the UK was actually a protective mechanism for me, unbeknownst to myself, because I didn't know any different. If I did have an idea, I might have engaged in a different manner. If I had known what it was, I may have, you know, reacted poorly to this young man that come looking for for drugs at my door in a really negative, aggressive way. I just didn't know what he was talking about. I was trying to help him solve the situation by offering him plants outside the window. Um, <laughs> but if if I had known a lot of things, I think that my experiences would have been very different. And some of the activities that some of my colleagues at university engaged in, I had no interest <laughs> in any of that because I just knew that, that wasn't what we did that, as a family. That yeah. was the, but the, it just the thought that, you know, it's not even that your parents will find out, just the thought about, you yeah, know, it's like, that's, no, that's, we don't do that. We don't do that. <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> so were there any other cultural differences or misunderstandings that occurred in those few years? While at uni, there were a number of different issues that came up through the the course, but I had an amazing personal tutor who was very, very understanding and was able to make some changes in terms of interactions with students who were displaying bias, obviously or ignorantly, and I was able to discuss it with her. I honestly hadn't thought of people's differences as deeply or as taking it as seriously as physical differences or nationality differences or accent differences until starting education in the UK. Because we had teachers from all over the world at our school in Oman. We had students from all over the world at our school in Oman. Yes, there were issues that arose from that, but most of the time in terms of school activities was spent trying to bring people together as opposed to keeping people in their separate social or cultural groups. And going through uni, I found that people of colour did gravitate towards each other and you would overlap maybe through a sports team. But in terms of socialising, a lot of my socialising was done with other students of colour, international students and black British students as well. So life after university, mm. what what is it like? Because I know beyond university, you've, you've travelled a lot as well. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that. Life after university was, um, it was all a bit of a surprise to me. I am very conscious about seeing the world. I want to see other parts of the world. And I knew that doing a teaching degree would help me do that. And the idea, the seed had always been there from the start. So completed my degree, completed a PGCE, and then moved back to London and worked in two comprehensive schools. And I had amazing mentors, to be honest, and progressed through my career quite swiftly. So by the seventh, by my seventh year, or by my third year, I'd really got a position of responsibility 
by my fifth year got another promotion and by the seventh year I was then head of quite a large department a science department in a comprehensive school in South London and I had amazing mentors that helped mold my career and offered all the training courses and all the support in terms of building departments up and achieved a lot doing that job. But the seed of travel had always been there. So after 10 years experience in London, I did move back to the Middle East and lived in four different countries over a 10 year period teaching science to international students. And it allowed me the opportunity to see a lot of the world. So I made a pact with myself to visit at least two new countries a year. And I did that for the 10 years I worked abroad. And majority of that travel was done solo. So I didn't travel a lot with friends in the last seven years. The first three years I did travel a lot with friends. But the last seven years I like to explore lots of different places and do so by myself. I quite enjoy seeing the way people live in different parts of the world. And I know I don't get to see everything because even in Cheltenham, you can go from one end of Cheltenham to another and see lots of different experiences. But I like having a little peek. So where, where, where specifically, which countries did you go? Just give us like a top five for, you know, that, um, you know, is that just there that you still remember? It's my like, very okay. first um, solo travel was um, three and a half weeks in um, Thailand. And that was, that was the beginning. And that was just beautiful because all I had booked was the flight in and the flight out of Bangkok and spent two days in Bangkok at the start and spoke to a number of different agents and then put together the rest of the trip. So I tried not to do just the things that were on the tourist track. So I spent quite a long time in the north of um, Thailand in Chiang Mai and travelled out of there for about eight or nine days just to see what was what was out there. Took a few cookery courses, swam in the ocean, and then the last week was spent island hopping. So Koh Samui is the <laughs> most beautiful island, and the airport on that island is the best airport I've ever been to in my entire life. Because wow. it's set up like you're still on holiday. So they've got deck chairs literally against the um, tarmac. So the planes are coming in and leaving and you can still have one or two cocktails, virgin if you want, um, <laughs> on lounge chairs with some um, beach sand with palm trees. And it doesn't make you feel sad that you're leaving because you still have a little bit left of the holiday just before you get on your plane. That sounds absolutely amazing. I know you mentioned that actually you lived in the Middle East for 10 years mm. and uh, lived in four countries. Mm. Uh, which countries were they? The UAE, Oman, I went back to Oman, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. So because you've moved from Nigeria mm -hmm. to Oman and then to the UK mm -hmm. and then uh, now back to the Oman again. Yeah. And and so how was that? Now you're going back to Oman as an adult and, and these other different countries in the Middle East. It was, I, I felt like I got a chance to give something back to a country that gave me so much. I didn't work at the same school that I went to. I went to, I worked at a different school, which was a rival school at the time. 
but it was providing education to children who were just like I was, child of an expat living in a new country. And some of the students were very new, as in recently arrived, because contracts could be a year and some people had been there since birth. They were born in Oman to um, non-Omani parents. So it, it felt like I was able to give something back to students who were having similar experiences to what I had as a student. And was that different, uh, teaching in Oman and then UAE, you mentioned, isn't it? The schools were all... I worked in international schools in the UAE, Oman, Bahrain and Saudi. I then went back to the UAE. I worked in the UAE, two different jobs. The second time was on an advanced science program where we weren't teaching international students. We were teaching Emirati children, but we were teaching the um, elite students. We were teaching them English, maths and science in English as opposed to the regular curriculum, which was in Arabic. So the elite students, we were doing advanced science work with them. And I was there for about three and a half years. And that was a completely different experience again, with lots of different challenges that weren't the same as the challenges faced in international school settings. But it was a time of growth for the students as well as for the staff. It was very challenging, but very rewarding as well. would get students who were nine, maybe 10 years old, arriving with no English and learning a very technical vocabulary-led subject like biology and teaching them that in English when I have no Arabic at all. So it challenged my professional skills, my ability to teach severely, but I think it made me a better teacher trying to find ways that would engage and also promote learning to students who often arrive with, with no English at all. Wow, that must have been, oh, that is, I couldn't imagine being a teacher, you know, and having to teach a subject, mm. and that's in English, which, uh, to a child who has hardly got English language yeah. command at all. Like having practical activities always, always help, and pictures. And I did work a lot with my um, Arabic colleagues in terms of translating words so they could see which words were which so that they could form connections and improve their learning that way. And was that similar in Saudi and Bahrain as well? Um, Saudi and Bahrain were international schools, Mm. just like in um, Oman. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, lots of different nationality students of expat parents having British education because all the international schools I worked in were delivering the British curriculum with international GCSEs and A-levels. So having lived in all these different countries Mm. across the world, where do you consider home? That's a question, isn't it? (laughs) Um, I would always say that I'm Nigerian, because that's where I'm from. That's where I was born. That's where my first few years on earth were. And that's where my parents were from. And they instilled the um, social and cultural influences of my birth country in me from there. Unfortunately, I don't speak the language. So my cousins would beg to differ. (laughs) (laughs) Because when I am in Nigeria, they would often request that I don't speak in public because it increases the price of things. Um, Because they think that then they're traveling with tourists. So the things that would be very different if I had grown up completely in Nigeria, 
that are very stark in terms of my expectations. I don't have children, but my siblings, two of my siblings do. And I think that in terms of expectations, I think that we're probably a little bit softer than our parents were. And in terms of the boundaries, uh, Mm. they do have strong boundaries for their children, as I do for their children as well. Mm. But I think that we've got softer edges, Mm. so to speak. So where would I consider home? I would consider home to be wherever I am and wherever I choose to be. I make a home wherever I am. I was very at home with my family in Nigeria. I was very at home with my friends and family in Oman and through my travels or cities that I've lived in. I have always found or made a community. So I'm really excited about being new to Cheltenham and meeting and making new friends and community here too. So looking back into your travels, what is your relationship with the UK now versus Nigeria or perhaps the Middle East? Um, I make my own home. That's mm. true. But I do feel like a foreigner everywhere. So in Nigeria, because I don't speak any of the native languages, I can do accents very well, though. That's an issue in terms of communicating with elders. Um, Living in the Middle East, everybody as part of the expat world are expats. We're not nationals or locals from the country. So again, there are differences in expectations for your behaviour or your expectations of what you want from the country. And being in the UK, again, it's different. I feel at home. But I know it's not my home because I am often (laughs) told that it isn't my home. I am a visitor. I do feel sometimes that it doesn't matter what you what you receive as long as you're able to give your best in all situations, then you make you make your own reality as much as you can. So what brought you back to the UK and how are you enjoying living here now? (laughs) What brought me back to the UK? Bullying. Bullying is what brought me back from my family. (laughs) They said, you've been, you said you were going for three years and now it's been a decade. It's time to come home. Um, I say that lightly, but I did miss them being able to see my family regularly, but I'm sure that they, they enjoyed coming to visit me while I was in lots of different places. But it is good to be home, good to attend my uh, nibblings, nieces and nephews' birthday parties and see them in person and hug my siblings on their birthdays and spend Christmas together when I don't have to leave in a few days to go to another country. So it is good and I do feel very, very blessed and very, very lucky to be able to move as I see fit. Yeah. (laughs) So are you happy with your decision having moved in the different, you know, to Oman and different countries? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a decision that I would ever want to take back. And I think that I think that the world would be a better place if everybody did a little bit of traveling, if everybody tried to live somewhere else just to see how living somewhere we are not quote unquote from feels like. So that when you do return home, you're a little bit more open and accepting of other people because Nobody owns a land, in my view, but the little patch that you live in, you exist in, you should try 
as much as possible to make it a welcoming environment for anyone who happens to cross your path. So what message would you give to a younger version of yourself about your travel and migration journey? Do it. Do it quicker. Do it sooner. (laughs) Do more travel. Yeah, I wouldn't change. I wouldn't change a single thing. I've had some difficult experiences, but I've had some joyous experiences as well. So should we say you plan to make the UK your home forever now? I will say, inshallah, (laughs) (laughs) which is what we said in the Middle East when we say probably, (laughs) probably, but it actually means God willing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your migration story? Nothing that I can think of right now, but... Personally, I think you said it perfectly, travel. Yeah, travel, absolutely, absolutely. Whenever you can, for as long as you can, it doesn't have to be expensive. Just get there and see how other people exist. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming to have a chat with us, Duny. <laughs> I think, I think we can probably go on forever. I'm sure we could. It's been, we such a, uh, it's been such a pleasure having this conversation and I'm hoping that you come back again. I will absolutely love to do this again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to I Migrate the Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share with a friend or subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can even write a review. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode. I Migrate the Podcast is hosted by Florence Nusamo. It is produced by Tyra at Foss Creative Studio and is brought to you by Lives of Colour.